Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. If I were to ask you to describe the entire Bible in a sentence, the whole story arc of Scripture into one phrase, what would that be? And maybe this is an exercise you could just kind of engage with. And maybe you're familiar with the scriptures and maybe it's brand new to you. But I think it's important for us to ask ourselves, what is the story that God is telling through the scriptures? And so here's my humble attempt. Again, this is not scripture, but this is, again, my attempt to submit to you what I think that the story is ultimately telling us. Now, the Bible is telling us that God relentlessly moving towards his creation in love. But this is essentially the story and the pattern of the story in Scripture again and again and again is God's creation, the relationship, is him relentlessly pursuing his creation in love. And that story is told a thousand times over in Scripture. And it's the, essentially the story that's being told as fulfilled in Jesus. And it's a story we continue to live in today. That he seeks, he knocks at the door, and that he desires to come and have relationship with us. And that's essentially the theme of our whole Advent season. The next four weeks we're going to be looking at this phrase, with us. And what does it mean that God came to be with us? theological term for that is called the incarnation. We'll be using that word a lot the next few weeks. It's how God came incarnate with us, came as one of his creations to display his desire to have us reconcile to him for all of creation, that he would pay any price for that to happen. I think one of the most vivid displays of this is Michelangelo's masterpiece, The Creation of Adam, that sits on top of the Sistine Chapel, 65 feet up. And the story goes that this whole ceiling took him four years to create. Day after day, he would climb scaffolding up to 65 feet tall. And as he was painting it, paint would just drip on him. So at the end of every day, he would just be drenched in just the the painstaking effort to create this masterpiece. And I, I love that story because I think it actually speaks to what he was painting. It's this act active pursuit of God to come and breathe life. But rather than Michelangelo being messed up through the pain that fell on him, it's God who bore the penalty for that to be able to be the reality for us to live in. The art critic Mary Pitaluga in her book, The Sistine Chapel, says, From the powerful hand of the Almighty, life and strength flow to the still tender hand of the mortal and through his inert limbs. And so I want to just really briefly look at the story arc of Scripture and how it describes this theme of God wanting to be with us. And it begins at the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, we see this beautiful poetic description of creation coming into being. But what we miss in the Hebrew poetry and what we miss based on ancient cultures that were around in that time is that what is being described here is somewhat of a cosmic temple and that in any ancient temple 
there was, there was symmetry that was being built in, that there was imagery that was happening. And at the core of any temple was the idol, was the depiction of what that God was like. And at the end of this cosmic temple being told in the poetry of Genesis chapter 1, we see the image of that God being us, his humanity. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created mankind in his own image, his own icon. The same word we get idol, this, that what we want people, when we want them to see and understand what God is like, that they would be actually able to look at humanity as that picture. And as the story continues, this beautiful, perfect temple where God's creation could commune with him, all of a sudden is under siege because of the of his creation adam and eve's overstepping of the beautiful life and gift that they have been given and this is where we see them have what we what we call the fall sin enters the story and disrupts that and genesis 3 ends with says that the lord god made garments of skin for adam and his wife and clothed them and the lord god said the man has now become like one of us knowing good and evil he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. This is beautiful. We see after humanity's inability to live within communion with God, what does God do? He sacrifices an animal, clothes them, which is ultimately a picture of what Jesus will do. And then he says, we can't have them eat from from the tree of life, living in this eternal state of being disrupted and separated from us, they have to be outside the garden. Which again is this beautiful act of grace and mercy of God to clothe them, to cover them, to sacrifice for them, to make sure that this state of being distanced and exiled is not permanent. And this pattern continues throughout all of Scripture. Just let me just give you a brief overview. As Genesis continues, we see the world enter into global rebellion against God as every single intent of the human heart was bent towards evil. And what happens? Noah's Ark. Then a little bit further, we see the, that, again, once again, human, humanity is bent towards rebellion. And we see this accumulate in the Tower of Babel. And then what do you see? That after the dispersion of the Tower of Babel, God chooses Abraham to be the, the starting point of his people. After Abraham's family builds into a tribe, we see this division take place in the family, this famine take place in the land, and all of a sudden they find themselves in Egypt. But what happens? Joseph ends up leading them to a place of restoration. But while they're in Egypt, what happens? They become oppressed under 400 years. They grow into this mighty nation, and out of fear, they be, they've lost now any right or authority. And so what happens? God hears their cry and leads them in the exodus out of Egypt. And when they're in the desert, they've fled Egypt. What do they do? They've set up a golden calf. And as they set up a golden calf, what does God do? He doesn't blow them away. He doesn't, he doesn't give up on them. He reaffirms their covenant by giving them the Ten Commandments. And after they start complaining in the desert, what does he do? He sets up the presence, his own presence as a tabernacle that moves along with them. And as they move into the promised land, they ultimately reject Yahweh as their king. And they say, we want to be like all the other nations. We want to have our own king. 
And after that doesn't work out, God steps in and he establishes the king of his choice, which would be David, which would end up being kind of an archetype of the Messiah who would come. And then he ends up setting up a temple. And then after this temple's built, you would assume like, ah, finally now people will live in right relationship with God. But because of civil war, idolatry, they end up rejecting the ways of God and that ends up being taken over by Assyria and Babylon. I mean, this is, it's a tiring cycle. The people of God rebel. God comes towards them in grace. They choose to walk away. God walks towards them. It is literally the cycle of the entire Old Testament. And as they're in exile, what do we see? Enter Jesus. He comes in, in the incarnation. And this promise of God setting things right is finally coming to fruition. Which is why at the beginning of the story of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, in talking about Mary, says, She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet 500 years earlier. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And so here we see if, if the rebellion and the rejection of God grows strong, God's grace and pursuit goes stronger. And we see this culminate in the life of Jesus. Jesus is sent in the flesh, divine incarnation, into the world to draw them back to himself. I love what my friend Ian Graham says. He says, To our refugee world, alienated from home and homeland, Jesus is the shocking turn. The Father has run down the road, bearing the shame to wrap us in his embrace, calling us daughters and sons and inviting the whole world of famine to the homecoming feast. And this is the story of Jesus. And so, obviously, our assumption would be, well, then the cycle of humanity's rebellion and God's pursuit stopped, right? But it doesn't. Jesus ends up being crucified by his own people. But what happens? He resurrects, not only for his own life, but to show us what we're all invited into. Well, that must be the end of it. No, it still continues. The church ends up becoming this divided and dispersed community, persecuted. But what happens? It actually builds a resilient church, spirit-filled, that God begins to start building. And I think all of us recognize that that pattern, although there was a decisive shift with Jesus, still goes on to this day. It still goes on to this very moment. Within our own hearts, we still have this pattern where we actively choose counterfeit gods, functional saviors, our own selves, and we reject God. But here's the good news of the story of the scripture again and again and again. God continues to be with us. So if you're watching this and you have actively or passively rejected or walked away from God at any level. The story of Advent is that God is still with you. He's still pursuing you and coming after you. Rich Velotis says, the good news of Advent is not that we are faithful in our waiting, but that God is faithful in his coming. 
This is the beautiful invitation. This is why if you start at this the beginning, but also if you end with the end, listen to Revelation 22. It says, The Spirit and the Bride say what? Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The Bible ends with the proclamation and the invitation of what? God being with us. And this is, this is something that we can never get tired of hearing. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to be hitting on this theme of what does it mean for God to be with us. But here's the twist. When God shows up in the person of Jesus at the incarnation, it's shocking. The way God shows up is not the way that you would have expected him. It wasn't through some sort of militaristic triumphant progress. It was through the humble and some level provocative display of his love by him coming as an infant and him coming as a baby. And so this is where we find ourselves and each week we're going to be looking at one of the, of the twists, one of the turns and how it ends up being revealed that in the type of way that God moves towards us. And so we're going to be looking at God coming this week as light in the midst of darkness. We're going to be looking at how God comes as a child in the midst of oppressive power. We're going to be looking as God comes as Savior in the midst of a, of a, of a world that feels helpless and so on. And so I want to spend the next few minutes just honing in on this one theme. God is coming to be with us as light. One of the most specific prophecies giving of Jesus' coming 500 years before he comes is found through the prophet Isaiah in the ninth chapter. When it says, Nevertheless, there will be no, no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but the future he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Why is this prophecy significant? It's not just kind of the warm feeling that we get says when we read that those walking in darkness have a light has dawned. It's the geographical location of where this takes place. Naphtali and Zebulun, which are two areas, two territories that were the very first of all of Israel's territory to be taken over by Assyria, meaning Naphtali and Zebulun had been in darkness the longest. Guess where Jesus started his ministry? In a place called Galilee. Galilee is the place where Naphtali and Zebulun were, meaning Jesus specifically showed up in the region that had been oppressed and in darkness the longest. That's the story of Advent. It's a light dawning in the places, whether they're geographical or internal, in our lives and in our region that seem to be marked by an identity of darkness beyond anything else in our life. That's the beautiful good news of what Advent is, is that God continues to find the dark areas of our life, of our city, of our world, and He moves towards them. This is actually why 
Historically, the church has celebrated Advent in winter. Even though we know that Jesus was probably born sometime in the spring, the early church began when they were making their calendar, placed Advent during the winter solstice. Because what they wanted to do is when days got the shortest and night got the longest and night became the darkest is when we need to be reminded of the Incarnation. Isn't that beautiful? That Advent is placed when we need it most. And so if you're watching this and this past year of your life has been marked by darkness, deep darkness, maybe this Advent could be an opportunity where light is dawning. You ever watched a sunrise before? Gotten up before the sun rose, it's still dark, and you go and find yourself on top of a hill or a mountain and you're just sitting there and waiting and, and you're looking for something. All of a sudden, the colors begin to start changing. And slowly but surely, it begins to get brighter and brighter. But all of a sudden, as the colors change, nothing could have prepared you for that moment when that first beam of light strikes the horizon line and everything changes. That's what Advent is. It's God with us as light in the midst of our deep darkness. And what that does for us is when we start seeing that light over the horizon, that light dawning, it infuses the very first theme of Advent, which is hope. Hope starts to arise in our heart. Hope doesn't mean that everything is better, circumstances change. It just means that it won't always be this way, that we are moving towards light. We are moving towards restoration. Why? Because God's moving towards us. Why is that important? Well, hope is intrinsic to our well-being, our psychological benefits, our physical benefits, and our social benefits. Psychologically speaking, people who are filled with hope have more positive emotions, stronger sense of purpose and meaning, lower levels of depression, and are um, documented as being less lonely. Also, people who have higher levels of hope in their physical bodies have better physical health, re reduced risk of all-cause mortality, fewer numbers of chronic illnesses, lower risk of cancer, fewer sleep problems, and it even has social benefits. In a study that took place in 975 adolescents, grades from 7 to 12, it marks the social benefits of those young people who are filled with hope. There's something about hope that makes our psychology, our physiology, our biology enhance. We need hope, and that's what Advent is all about. It's the dawning over the ridge of a dark night that light is coming once again. So just four things I just want you to think about when it comes to the hope of light that's coming. Number one is that he came. Number two, that he conquered. Number three, that he comes. And fourthly, he's coming again. The fact that he came through Jesus is the proof of that light. The fact that he conquered later on by the Christ, is the power of His light. The fact that He comes through the Spirit is the presence, the continual presence of His light. And lastly, He's coming again as the King, is the promise, the hope of that light coming to full fruition in our world and the world around us. So just a quick note on each. Number one is that He came. He came in the Incarnation to prove His light. And what that means is that how he came as an infant, as a human being, bearing all of the things it requires to be human and just to be a person, 
means that we have a God who sympathizes with us. Is why Hebrews chapter 4 talks about how we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way. And I love saying, just as we are, God came just as we are. His love and His light have been proven through the incarnation. Secondly, is that He conquered through the cross that the power of His light, it literally says, when talking about the cross, this is why I came. The incarnation is always pointing towards the crucifixion. Because He came here, not just to be present to us and to feel what it feels like to be human, but to ultimately liberate us from the bondage of this world and the hardship of being human that was never meant to last for eternity. And what that looks like is interesting because Oftentimes when we look at the cross, we're like, well, if it was a decisive victory, why are we still in this tension? Why do we still need hope if hope has been fulfilled? I love what Hebrews 2.8 says. It says, In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. Meaning, we live in what theologians call the now and the not yet. The cross gave the decisive blow of victory, and yet we still live in this tension of not a fully realized, what's called an eschatology, of Jesus' full return and making everything right. I think the best illustration I have for this is at World War II, the famous event of D-Day, where the Allied forces um, rushed the beach of Normandy. On that day, victory was decided. The Nazi regime was no longer able to win that war. But what's fascinating is in the months that followed D-Day became some of the most costly and bloody of all the war. Why? Because the enemy was defeated. The way it fought was not from a place of victory, but from a place of failing. We live in between the now and the not yet. The victory has been decided and yet we still fight until we see the fulfillment of that. Fleming Rutledge says, religious systems that ignore the dark sides of life are fundamentally dishonest. In Advent, we don't pretend, as I once thought, that we're in the darkness before the birth of Christ. Rather, we take a good hard look at the darkness we are now facing and defining it honestly so that we will understand with utmost clarity that our great and only hope is in Jesus' final victory that's coming. Third, is that not only has He come, not only has he conquered, but he's continuing to come. We just finished a series on the Holy Spirit. And the whole point of that series is to point out that God is continuing to activate himself in our lives. And so the response to that reality is what in Galatians 5.25 says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And just a reminder, in the season of Advent, it's also the season of the commercial holiday of Christmas, meaning it's busier than ever and more costly than ever, which means we have to fight more than ever, not to, not to entice God to come closer, He's already here, but to pay attention to Him, to open up our lives and our rhythms in such a way that would say, God, I'm going to make room for you. And Rene Maria Rilke, who's one of my favorite poets, in the Book of Hours, he talks about this, this idea that God is closer than we think, and yet we find ourselves oftentimes missing that incredible gift that comes with the promise of, 
of the Holy Spirit and what Jesus ultimately accomplished for us at the cross. He says this in, in the book of ours. He says, You, God who live next door, if at times through the long night I trouble you with my urgent knocking, this is why I hear you breathe so seldom. I wait listening always. Just give me a sign I'm right here. As it happens, the wall between us is very thin. I just love that last line in his poem is that as he's talking about his relationship to God, what feels like next door and desiring to hear his breath. He says this line, as it happens, the wall between us is very thin. I love Advent because it reminds us that the wall is very thin. We're nearer to God because he's near to us than we could imagine. And the last thing is this, he's coming again, which is in my life, one of the driving forces of hope. Advent isn't just looking back to the fact that he came, as glorious as that is, but that he's coming again. And when he comes, Revelations 22 says this, No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Now listen to verse 5. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. I love that. There will be no more night. I know for many of you who have watched this, this past year has been marked by great loss, a sense of very real darkness. And it's an opportunity for us to identify with that darkness to say that someday there will be no more night. Why? Because the Lamb will be their lamp. He will set all things right. Eugene Peterson says that hope is not about the future. Hope is about the present. It obviously has to do with the future, but it's a virtue which is cultivated in the present. It fills the present with energy. It connects the two comings of Jesus so that we are now participant in them. We are not just remembering the one and believing in the other. We are participating in the continuity of the comings. I just want to end our time together just reading out a, a psalm, a song, a prayer that has been sung and prayed out loud for thousands of years. And this is from Psalm 130, and I'd encourage you just to pray it along with me. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord. So remember this Advent season that we will be talking about the beautiful reality that God is with us. And this week in particular, He is with us as a light that dawns in the darkness, which means we get to live a life marked by hope. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.